Welcome to Hacks. It's a tech podcast. My name is Simon. I'm joined, as always, by Rob Scherf. Hello, listeners. This week we have Maralsa Tadania back in the Institute. You just doxed me. I can't believe that. I'll, I'll bleep <gasps> Hello, it Hello, listeners. And, no, you got to leave it now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for the first time, we have welcomed a, a guest into the hallowed halls of the Hacks Institute. For the very first time, it's uh, Justine Smith. Hi, I'm super happy to be here. And Justine is a contributing film writer at uh, the National Post and some other places. Where else are you? You're all over the place, Justine. Where else have you been published lately? I mean, these days, National Post is probably the big one, but I write quite a bit for Cult of Montreal, um, occasionally Roger Ebert, That's other right, places. Yeah. I'm sure uh, Birth Movies Death. And a bit in Cleo, right? A fil- the Feminist Film Journal? Yes, I love writing for Cleo. It's like a dream. Yeah, shout out to Cleo. Uh, you are listening to Hacks. We brought you in, Justine, for uh, a topic that's like uh, quite far away from our normal wheelhouses, but I think still has some some shared sort of interests that are like germane to other topics we've, we've done. Today we're talking about internet porn culture, and uh, we're going to get to why we're going to get to why we brought you in for this in a, in a minute. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is. Justine, I've I've known you since I lived in Montreal. I lived there for about uh, eight or nine years, and I'm not sure that all Canadians or like North Americans or people who might be listening to this podcast know just how huge the the porn industry is in terms in in specifically in Montreal in terms of how many people are employed in it, um, and also just how much of it is, is concentrated in just a few companies. One company in particular, and there's a really good primer on this that you pointed me to on. Uh, on John Ronson's podcast, The Butterfly Effect, essentially there's one company uh, now known as MindGeek, which owns uh, the majority of the like really major porn sites that people frequent. Uh, from you know uh, the biggest is Pornhub, but also YouPorn and a couple others, as well as multiple huge um, porn production companies. And this is all run out of Montreal, not the filming, but the actual running of the of the website and the various sort of machinations that have to go on to make that work. So eventually I want to talk about, about that whole phenomenon, but uh, specifically Justine, I wanted to bring you on because um, you, over the last little while, you have become a writer of porn. Yes. I write scripts for porn. Right. And I think now that you've said that, I think a lot of people at home, the, the, the visceral reaction is wait, people write porn when a lot of people think about, you know, modern pornography, they think about stuff that really wouldn't seem to have any kind of quote plot to speak of. So I guess my first question is like, how much, how much of, of online pornography has some element of scripting? Do you think? I mean, I think in general, there isn't that much scripting compared to like an actual feature length film or a television show. Um, in most script situations, we're talking about one page equals one minute. Even porn that's about 60 minutes is rarely over 10 pages. In terms of what I write, I'm usually writing for like a feature length style, which is 70 to 90 minutes, and I rarely exceed 20 pages. Really? Yeah. So you're writing more like scenario setups? Yes. Sort of thing? I mean, the actual, like, porn part is not very scripted. That's usually up to the director. 
sometimes you can give cues or hints in terms of characterization or you lead into it and then you lead out, but you're not necessarily going beat by beat. I have also done uh, scripts on spec for some of the Mind Geek, com Mind Geek companies. In that case, it's a little different. They have like a, it's not really a script script, even though there's definitely elements of it. It's more like a really fancy spreadsheet, in mm -hmm. which case you're- A spreadsheet? It's kind of like a spreadsheet. Yeah, like they have like little boxes. So you, at the beginning of it, you're putting in the costumes of what people are wearing. You're putting in locations and giving them kind of like an idea of what you're imagining. Then there's about five pages of an intro to a scene, quote unquote. And then the rest of it is often another spreadsheet type thing like you would do with the different outfits that you want or the different costumes, mm -hmm. but the different sexual positions. And then you might so you actually have the position. Yeah, they want you to like, I think it's, if I remember correctly, something like five to six different positions. So different setups for the director to kind of take cue. And then you usually have like maybe half a page of like an outro after the sex scene. Um, but normally what I'm writing, it's like, I'm not doing like a uh, missionary. Da -da -da. I'm basically setting up what would be a sex scene and then the director kind of fills that in for what they need or what they want i don't really have information on that part and everything you're describing is that like generated by your brain or are there sort of ideas fed to you about oh we'd really like to see x y and z incorporated i mean what i do right now normally i have a lot of free range in terms of uh scenario characterization and setups more or less there's definitely some guidance. Uh, they'll usually tell me either specific actors that they're going to use. Sometimes they'll tell me who they want together in a scene. Occasionally it'll be a bit more vague because of the way that the industry works in terms of algorithms and whatever. It's usually in terms of like type, quote unquote. So they'll be like, we need a MILF with college or there's it, like most things are arranged by MILF. Uh, college or young or like teens zone and then there's like the mid-range which they don't really have a term for which are more like women around 25 to 35 that are not quite mid-range yeah not quite milk but just like, regular adults yeah adults <laughs> but they don't really it's like it's not like as easy like of a code so like they right you, there's no sexy there's it's no category sexy. on Pornhub for adults yeah they're like or oh just... she's gonna be like around 30 that's what they would tell, tell me for, for that. So I would have to create the scenarios in which they set them up. And sometimes, depending, like, they'll have, like, stars, quote unquote. Like, star, they are stars. Some of them who have, yeah, like, greater range in terms of acting, like, who can actually deliver lines. And then they have the stock players. And they're like, look, we need scenes with people who don't, we don't want to give them too much dialogue. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's actually, oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask a question? Uh, and thank you for coming on, Justine. It's my pleasure. Uh, how much, like, when you get a category, let's say MILF, are you, like, what happens if you try to subvert or, like, expand that category in the way that you stylize it or write it? Are, is there pushback? Like, where it's like, well, you know, this is more of a mid-range. I thought we talked about this. Or, like, how does that work? Um, that's a good question. I think that there's two, I, I have two answers. I have had... A little pushback on certain things. Sometimes there, there are little moments or nuances that I don't think are very notable. Um, mm -hmm. Also, usually, so I submit my script. They almost always approve it 
there's very little rewrites involved, generally speaking, because the production cycle is so quick. And I know that they often will just rewrite literal things as well. So I don't always see the difference because I'm very rarely actually watching the final product. Um, oh, that was, yeah. that was another question is actually if you ever watch your own work. Uh, sometimes. I, I, I've definitely watched some, but I don't watch all of it. It's a lot. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it, I wouldn't say there's a lot of subversion. I have been given like notes in terms of less about characterization, but more about tone. So like, especially for the places I write for, it's, I suppose, targeted more towards quote unquote women, though if women are the actual audience is another thing. I write 95% lesbian porn and maybe 5% trans porn. So it's like very female oriented. They want it to be very soft and sensual. And sometimes they think that my writing is too masculine. So I'll make a character who kind of is that a bit more characteristically porny, if that makes sense, where there's like mm. one-liners or puns or kind of like a, a machoism that they do not like. And in those cases, they'll say, go back to the dry board. Like they don't want to care. Like the, the way I would put it is like, if I write a character that's too much like Samantha on Sex and the City, that's too far. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and what is the, like generally speaking in your experience, like what, what is the gender makeup of the, the higher ups sort of making the, the, the producer class, I guess, of, of, of porn? Is it mostly men or mostly, or is it half and half? I couldn't say for sure. Um, in the case of where I work regularly, I'm working with a director who is a man. I do believe the company was founded by a former porn star who is a woman. I don't know how much oversight she has into the day-to-day. And I don't know mm-hmm. about my my boss's boss because I just don't deal with them mm-hmm. at all. Um, I know that the job interviews I've done at MindGeek, it was actually pretty close to 50-50 that there were a lot of women involved um, that I was dealing with who were the heads of different departments. Basically, as far as I understand it, there's all these subsidiary sites that people pay for. And then all of those, like there's different heads of, they're not really heads of departments. They're heads of like different writing teams who are in charge of certain websites, basically. And there did seem to be, if not 50-50, there was still, like, I would say, like, 35-40% were women. Mm -hmm. And, like, how much networking have you done, like, since you've gotten involved with people who've worked for MindGeek or, like, are working in the industry locally? Because I'm really really interested in, like, what is the corporate culture like around porn? I mean, networking, I've done almost nothing. I mean, depends how you define it. I do know a lot of people who've worked at one point or another for MindGeek. It employs a lot of people, many of whom don't de- deal directly with the pornography side of things at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is maintaining servers. They have a lot of software engineers, uh, people who are working really in, uh, I'm not techie at all, so like designing algorithms and doing marketing research and outreach in those sense um whereas i believe like the more creative side is pretty small it has a a much higher turnover rate especially people in the editing department and the people who are the quality control where they're looking through the videos that are submitted to these like huge sites like youporn and Pornhub. as far as i know they have a very hard time retaining people i wonder why um (laughs) and otherwise i do know like the corporate culture is like very stereotypically like tech startup style even though it's no longer a startup 
a lot of it mm-hmm. is like, oh, we offer like these amazing bonuses, like really flexible hours. Uh, they give you all these like allowances. They're really big on like free breakfast and brunch and at the headquarters. Um, Mind Geek in Montreal, like if you if you know the city at all, like you can imagine it's literally across the street from the Orange Julep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's like near a bunch <laughs> of malls, but they have a it's like it's young and hip and whatever. I work from home otherwise, so I don't really deal with people. Yeah, actually, if I can um, ask a follow up question to that, um, you mentioned that you work from home. So I, presumably the work is kind of distributed. It's remote. Um, do you have like a, like, how do you interact with your peers or do you have peers or just, does everyone kind of work in their own silo, so to say? I mean, as far as I don't, I don't have peers really, at least like for where I'm working right now, I'm, I work for, I don't even, I'm not officially employed by the company. I work for the, a director at a, at a porn company that is not affiliated with MindGeek at all. Um, so I deal with him directly. He often comes to me with ideas or general themes, and then we work a bit together on a general direction, and then I write a script. In fact, uh, can we talk about one of your recent projects or upcoming projects? Yeah, of course. Sure. Um, so Simon shared with us the trailer for Confessions of a Sinful Nun 2. Yeah. Number two. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure if that has come out or is going to come out or, or what, where it's, we are. It's in upcoming. The yeah. Upcoming. I watched this trailer And it was fascinating to me because (laughs) for obvious reasons and not obvious reasons, um, I'm not really accustomed to pornography that like is narrative, like has a heavy narrative influence. And like the way I look at that is as something that like used to be the case, right? Like a lot of what's being released right now is just like sort of um, disembodied scenes, right? Um, So is that is that something that's still common in the industry or like just your corner of the industry or what's your take on it? I would say it's definitely uncommon because it tends to be much more complex to to actually put together for a variety of reasons. Uh, you have a larger cast. You actually have to expand your shooting schedule. There, even within these, even within the company that I work with, I believe it is the exception. They do a few, like not a few necessarily. They're maybe doing one of these larger narrative projects a month, and they're probably as far as I understand it, still producing like the more typical, like individual scenes, probably on a more or less daily basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think it's much because of the way that the industry has really shifted uh, where most of the content is for free and very few people are actually buying DVDs or Blu-rays that it's less profitable. However, I do think that based on my experience, there is still a niche who are, genuinely interested and i think it's kind of comparable to something like hardcore genre fans like horror fans who will go out and still buy every dvd and blu-ray and every reissue and they have their favorite stars they have their favorite directors and there's still a market for that and i do believe like i don't know what the budgets are i I don't have any access to that kind of information i still imagine they are relatively low they're really reaching for a relatively niche market. But as we know from a lot of other industries, you can still make a profit if you can still connect with that audience. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, the website for the distribution company um, is, does clearly have that targeting, right? Like there's a a lot of copy about like the type of person that we're selling to. Um, It's interesting that you talk about um, the feature length films being more targeted toward like, um, 
people who are interested in like appreciating the the craft or, or like the art of the product and not necessarily just like the release aspect um which you know you would think that like in the more bite-sized scenes that's what they're for obviously right yeah and i mean um i've always like i obviously i write about film i'm a film critic and i've always written about sexuality and pornography to a lesser extent just because there's not a huge market for it it's it's difficult for me to 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 just find a place that will publish it although i have had some luck so there is definitely a legacy of it that goes back to the 1950s where while especially in the United States uh, while censorship laws were quite strict the first loophole in showing pornography in a public setting was um, nudist documentaries because they're not sexual and these directors are like well this is not porn this is a documentary about nudists and that slowly evolved into something called nudie cuties which again were super asexual they were not leering whatever they were just naked women like 99.9% naked women doing ordinary tasks without clothing um, that sometimes had framing device Uh, the immoral Mr. T's is maybe the most famous it was a landmark in terms of really fighting against the censorship boards it was directed by Russ Meyer who went on to do Beyond the Valley of the Dolls Up, Super Vixens some of the most iconic underground softcore pornography type of films that really made a big killing at the box office in the late 1960s and early 1970s in particular. But by the time video came around in probably the late 70s, you really start to see kind of a downturn where they become less profitable because people don't necessarily want to see them in theaters either because the novelty has worn off or because they can just watch them at home and nobody knows what they're actually viewing and then of course things devolved even more uh once you have the internet kind of thrown into the mix where people can get it for free Mm -hmm. yeah the um that podcast that i mentioned with john ronson it it very quickly and elegantly goes through how that specifically the evolution on the internet side happened where, you know, in the earlier days of the internet, pornography was all sort of paywalled off in these individual sites. And then, of course, the uh, the, the fine people at what used to be known as Manwin, um, and then eventually became MindGeek, figured out, you know, that if they were able to create a portal like YouTube that was for porn, then they, you know, that they could basically make a, an engine for printing money, which is exactly what they did. Um, I'm wondering if you have any, you know, as someone who is very well versed in the history of eroticism and like has a general interest in this stuff, like, do you have any, any particular feelings about sort of porn and ending up sort of in as this much more like fragmented thing that's like just so freely available? I have mixed feelings. I think that on one hand it can be, and it has been a very liberating element of a lot of society not that it it's, it's a very i feel like pornography is in a very strange stage where it is both mainstream and taboo where mm. you can watch like the big bang theory and they'll make jokes about internet porn but there's definitely still a stigma about actually engaging with it and a weirdness about the whole thing i think there's a lot of stereotypes about the kind of people who work in porn whether on screen or behind them I think that in general, in terms of 
all kinds of creative production, whether it's pornography or film or music, there is definitely a devaluation in terms of the actual labor that's involved, that these things were not costly because people are greedy. It's because they have costs and because people worked on them. And I think that definitely, like, it's not just pornography, but it's sex work in general. There's this kind of stigma that it's not really work, but that also extends to a lot of people think that graphic design is not really work, where people think that writing is not really work or painting because they think it's fun or they think it's a passion or a vocation when there's still work involved. There's a, it's a, it's, I feel like there's a, there's a kind of a weird tension going on in all of these industries that are kind of transformed by the freely available content that comes with the internet and the actual effort and work that kind of goes into it where people I think now feel kind of entitled that they shouldn't have to pay because they've been getting it for free. I, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's quite complex and I don't think that people are necessarily thinking about their choices the same way they don't always think about pirating something or mm-hmm. um, anything. I don't think it's like they don't spend hours a week considering the ramifications of streaming porn on Pornhub. Um, I do think that there is definitely some issues with, as I feel with many companies, I would equate Pornhub with Disney in terms of having a bit too much power within the industry. Um, I think that that can be very dangerous and very limiting, and it leads to a lot of unnatural control um, over not just the distribution, but over the production, which can be quite stifling and in the long term, definitely damaging towards the industry. I do think it's fascinating that like the vast majority of like engaging with visual depictions of human sexuality, however, you know, cliched or fabricated they may be, is really all filtered through one company. That's kind of wild. It's insane. It's crazy. I don't even have words because it's, it's difficult to kind of understand the industry outside of that because it, it dominates our contemporary understanding of pornography so heavily. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I don't even know if you could understand, like we, there was internet pornography before uh, mind geek and Manwin, but it was not the same thing that it is now. It's like, it's, it's not comparable, but most people were not boring buying online pornography anyways. So it was never part of their reality to begin with. Mm-hmm. I do think that you're absolutely right with what you said earlier in terms of it's both taboo and not in terms of it's a thing you can joke about. It's, it's perfectly fine as a punchline, but as a thing that's seriously discussed in polite society, it's just not done. Even though like, a you know, a, a significant chunk of the entire internet is pornography. Like a, a decent chunk of all internet searches are for pornography a massive percentage of internet users, um, more men than women, admittedly, but still are, you know, are people who watch and consume porn one way or another. And uh, my, my big thesis here is, is that like, however you feel about the industry and the concept, I don't think the taboo helps anyone. It's because of that taboo that like so few companies were willing to provide investment for anything like this. And then eventually, you know, the, the mind geek people were able to find a VC fund to give them hundreds of millions of dollars. And then when that happened, they became basically the only game in town and they bought everybody. And it was only because this whole topic is so kind of 
again, both within limits and weirdly outside of them and both everywhere and nowhere. And as a result, they've, they have a monopoly that would be uh, enviable for any company in any other industry. And, um, you know, it was only because MindGeek presented itself as a tech company that it was able to to get that investment, right? Right. Like they, yeah. they weren't walking around like talking about what a what a great supplier of pornography they were, right? They they were like a expressly Silicon Valley style um, technology outfit. Um, and Simon, just to rewind to some of your comments before, I mean, it it is amazing to me. Uh, on one hand, that pornography is so prevalent by volume of traffic on the internet, but also sort of on the other side of the issue, like people's online horniness is so performative now. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in last week's episode. Yes, with yeah. To, like horny brands. But like, you know, people are out here on Twitter tweeting all the time about how horny they are. Um, but there's like this missing middle where like what no one talks about what that is directed toward. Right. And I think that's really interesting. Just so everyone knows, uh, Rob and I aren't just like talking over Maral and not letting her speak. She had to leave to do some childcare just so no one thinks we're, you know, neglecting Maral. She's physically not here. We're silencing her by my neglect of my child. Not <laughs> yes, exactly. Because she's, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, when, when we were first um, sort of arranging this appearance, uh, Justine, you and I were doing some negotiating about how the logistics might go. And we were talking about the possibility of like doing voice cloaking or like some kind of thing. And then eventually you were just like, nah, and you, and you put like porn writer in your bio on Twitter. And like, what, um, did you have a change of heart at some point? Or did you just eventually decide like, actually porn is fine now. No one cares. I mean, so when I first started working as a porn writer, which is still not that long ago, it hasn't been a year yet. Uh, I was actually very open about it. And then there was a few incidents where People were talking about people working in porn that made me uncomfortable in a way that I'm like, I don't know. I, I kind of felt not stigmatized. I'm like, well, I feel like there's a dismissiveness that makes me mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And then I'm like, I, I was a bit worried that it would extend towards a dismissiveness to things I do in general. And I mean, that is always a possibility, but I feel like I, I write film criticism. <laughs> like, what's worse than that? Uh, uh, I, I, I never, I don't literally necessarily think I feel any shame or discomfort because I'm, I'm very open about things like that. I do sometimes worry like a lot about what my online brand is and I've just like never figured it out. And I'm like, like, I don't, I'm not that funny. I'm not that like, I never get like the scoop. I don't comment on news and I'm like, okay, like might as well just like. I'll be the one who also writes porn. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder though, I mean, you're, you're just one person, but I do wonder if, if maybe the fact that you were able to make that leap, if there's like an indicator of like some kind of like wider, wider progress happening where like it is so slowly becoming more normalized. I mean, I can't say I just, it's like growing up, growing up and working in Montreal is always just like a total trip compared to a lot of places Mm-hmm. I always knew people who worked at Manwin and MindGeek. That's how I got this job. I didn't do any job interviews. It was through a connection of someone who had a very similar sensibility as I did, and they thought that I would be good at it, and that was it. So it's, like, in, in general, Montreal is just a weird place. So Well, it's also a place where sex work has always been more normalized. Like, you know, yes, we have, been... we have, uh, what is it, the full contact stripping 
Yeah, full contact stripping. Um, hell, uh, and you'll know this, Justine. I remember being in the the film the film program at Concordia and having to go to public exhibitions of sex for a school project, and you know things like that that I just cannot imagine happening in Toronto. Well, you, you okay? So I remember this fairly specifically. I was not in that class, surprisingly, but oh, there well. was a I, for a long time, like decades in Montreal. I think it's near the Olympic Stadium. There was the topless breakfast place. I went there, and then, for that but they're project. not topless anymore. That's why what? I, I, I believe you went there, and it didn't work out because they were wearing bikini tops. Uh, okay, to be and fair, to... I, I think, I think what happened was that we got there a little bit too late in oh, the, in in the, the morning. Uh, like we got there by like nine thirty or something, but I think you needed to be really early to get the worm on that one. Um, and then I don't know what that metaphor was. Yeah, we ended up just going <laughs> to a regular strip club, and I saw some some kid get get like a paid like table dance from his uncle or something it was mortifying i'm never gonna forget that <laughs> to be clear yeah. the uncle paid for it and it had a it, it wasn't like it wasn't the uncle yeah. who gave the lap dance yeah no that was syntactically unclear i felt yeah it was, it was really bad <laughs> uh yeah so i need my smelling salts this i'm horrified by this entire conversation <laughs> <laughs> well i feel like the, the the other thing too is like montreal i do believe is quite foundational and you have to also take into account that Montreal is a really big city for um, mm-hmm. tech and startups and the video game industry as well. There is always that kind of like looking for the next big thing. It's a it's a much poorer city than literally like most cities of its size, though it is growing now because of the presence of places like Ubisoft, which are just like exploding, um, getting larger and larger. Um, so I do think that they're all kind of interconnected in a weird way, even though it's not necessarily the same kind of stuff and it's the people are not necessarily going from mind geek to Ubisoft or vice versa, but there's kind of something in the air that all contributes to people working in these kind of companies and cryptocurrency mm-hmm. is pretty big here too right now. Is it? Yeah. Someone explained someone in the crypto thing. I don't know if it, someone explained to me something about like the, the laws in Quebec are very generous and then the something about the weather i don't understand i don't like i don't understand cryptocurrency <laughs> they're like it's good those servers in the cold i'm like okay sure that tracks i mean that, that sounds right I, I think uh having not really spent that much time in montreal i mean there's definitely a, a unicorn aspect to the business side that you're describing right like a company like MindGeek can grow to like I don't know how big it is in terms of dollars, but a, a huge um, sort of annual revenue, huge uh, numbers of staff out of nowhere. Um, and it sort of attracts all this ancillary um, business around it. Right. So it's it's maybe it's the place itself, um, but it can also just be like the fact that there was a flagship company there that attracts a lot of other investment um, that's sort of adjacent. I mean, almost for sure. I, I can't speak to specifics, but that sounds right. And I think it's like if you... If you go to MindGeek, you kind of see it. You see the it's like in, it's in a mostly industrial side of the city. Like it's not in the cool part of town like Ubisoft is at all. But they are definitely kind of expanding in the area, and they are. It's a very from what I can tell, like the staff and everything is quite young and quite English for Montreal, which mm-hmm. is uh, possibly problematic for them. I, I don't know how they get away with that actually. Yeah, okay, I didn't think about that, like, literally till this moment, where all the interviews and everyone I've ever spoken to was in English, which is not necessarily legal in this province. Uh, <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a oh, scoop. Shit. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely, it's like, 
But I think people, it's like, I, as I said, like ever since I was young, I've known people since like probably the beginning of Manwin. I don't know how exactly what year it started, but people were working there. And then I worked also for, I think, the offshoot of that because it was a family-owned business that half of it went to Pornhub and half of it created a different tech company. I just had a vision of the uh, the Quebec language cops flying down to California and telling all the performers they need to say everything in English and French and French first. <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing. That would twice I would as like loud that. though. When you you kind of go into it, you just read the Wikipedia. It's super boring, <laughs> which is but it's 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 kind of interesting how boring it is. And you can only be an effective pornography business probably if you are super dull into the numbers. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's what they want. If you go to MindGeek's website, it is like, impossible. Boring. It's impossible to tell what they do, right? Because it's just copy about like, we have, uh, you know, incredible server speeds. Uh, our connectivity is better than anyone. It's like, is this an ISP? Is this like, are they selling internet storage? Like what actually is it? There's nothing on the website that tells you, oh, we are actually like a pornography conglomerate. And I think that goes back to sort of the, this idea that like to be taken seriously, quote unquote, you have to sort of present as like a certain type of company, um, at least when it comes to like investor investors. Um, but Simon, I want to circle back to something that you said earlier about, you know, the fact that Pornhub and, and MindGeek are like the single player that's mediating the distribution and, and in some cases like the production of pornography uh, for the entire internet. I find it interesting that, you know, I think of Pornhub uh, and its sort of offshoot sites as mainly like an analog to YouTube, right? Like it's an aggregator yeah. of content uh, as a, my wife is sort of around the house. So I have to be somewhat circumspect as a user, uh, an academic user of these sites. I do, <laughs> I, I sort of see it as, um, you know, just as a user, um, you know, people are like, whoever is out there uploading videos to Pornhub. And then I'm just like seeing it. And Pornhub is just the thing in the middle, the distribution channel. Yeah. Um, you know, lately we've sort of, we've seen a number of like contractions within the pornography industry. Like I think Tumblr famously like got rid of all the pornography uh, on its site and then it's all the stuff that could possibly down. be ever construed as maybe pornography adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. But that was like, that was um, a place on the internet where people, actual people um, produce pornography, uploaded it for the consumption of mm -hmm. others. Right. And, and Tumblr really was just that like um, independence Thing, distribution channel bulletin board that was just between the creator and the viewer yeah. um and even though Pornhub is sort of presenting itself as the same thing maybe it's not i'm not sure well there's definitely a, a distinction between like like patreon for instance still has 18 and up content that, that i've seen like i see it on the rankings and stuff i never look at that stuff because it's all anime weirdos but um you know there there are We're very accepting that, on this podcast yeah, no, I, I have only one stigma left, and it's for anime. Um, and, um, the, uh, you know, clearly there are still places, there's still, like, a few holdouts, like Patreon. But I would think of that as a very different thing from from uh, from Pornhub, even though people can, you know, start channels and, and upload things. As far as I know, there's no real monetization track that's serious. Yeah, I mean, it's like the... There's places like Pornhub, and then there's, like, sites that are not necessarily pornography like patreon is a good example reddit has it as well and then i think a lot of um porn performers have their own website in which many of them do operate in a kind of patreon model i believe like you have monthly subscriptions and different subscriptions give you different things like 
the minimum you have access to private Snapchat channel and all of these other things. It's super, super techy. And like even on Twitter, Twitter, you can still have pornography, unlike Tumblr at this moment, though it never really took off in the same way. I, I like I, I I've speculated on as to why I think Tumblr is has has always kind of been a bit more of an exclusive inclusive type of place where people find their own little communities where Twitter is like a hellhole where everything you post is not just like speculatively going to be up for debate or scrutiny but like necessarily will be it always yeah. like that's just it's not like I'm gonna just try this out whereas Tumblr is like so was always so much warmer even if they have those weird like drama things yeah tumblr is like a speakeasy and twitter is like a a, is like war it's (laughs) it's it's a battleground but you can still see like the way that certain porn stars do use twitter to connect with their fans or to kind of bring people to their private websites and there's definitely now, like, with cam girls, like, it's a whole other... It's, like, it's... The whole thing with... Online pornography is definitely not just, like, very... It's, like, it's not just one thing. It encompasses mm-hmm. so much. And within that, there's so much overlap in terms of different engagement with the social... Different social medias. Um, and then, like, if you... Like, I don't know how much of the butterfly effect you've listened to, but they kind of go into people who make a lot of money on niche fetish porn uh which seems to be where really the big money is made right now where people literally make customized pornography with Mm -hmm. the people they want to have like either that they want to start with so it is kind of an extension of more traditional sex work or have certain videos produced which is often like very fetish oriented i believe that they talk about someone in a birthday cake i don't know what that involved but it wasn't necessarily even sexual. But they're make that's that's where they're making more money because Pornhub is basically it's like any kind of online pirating. Once it's your hard worked pornography is up there, it doesn't matter if you issue a takedown notice, it's out there and it's already spread over the entire internet and there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if there's no way for you to make money on one of those like aggregation platforms on the internet, really the only way to do it now is is like a very aggressive like direct to cu- customer sort of strategy, and porn obviously is the same way now. A hundred percent, and I think it's like what we're talking about before about the narrative film, the narrative porn is they're reaching kind of the collector mentality a little bit. People who want to own these products. Not because they can't get it for free, but because they want to have it in their home and they want to be able to have a porn collection. And that could also, like, I don't know how in-depth that is. Like, I don't have a collector mindset except for maybe books, but even then I would say collecting is a strong word. Um, But there's definitely a a, a pretty substantive audience who will just buy all the DVDs. And if it's narrative Mm -hmm. and it has their favorite actor, it's a triple, quadruple bonus. Well, and that was something I personally experienced as a video store clerk, as you'll remember, Justine. Uh, not from being a person who came in and bought porn, but you know, we had we we sold and rented porn, and we had regulars. And admittedly, like it has been a few years, and most of the video stores in Montreal are gone. Toronto still has a few, um, but you know, there that type definitely exists of people who just watch everything and and buy a surprising number. Yeah, I feel like it's like an an all or nothing type of thing, you know. It's like the people who are really into it are going to spend a lot of money, like way more than 
I would be comfortable spending on anything except for food. I have noticed also among like younger people that there is like sort of a there is sort of a movement towards like quote unquote ethical porn consumption where like instead of for instance going to a um because I I think that among these people there is a general perception that you know sex work is work and people who work in pornography are in there are you know that's they're also in that wheelhouse and that you should pay workers and you should if possible pay workers directly because these intermediaries are bloodsuckers so for these people you know ethical consumption would be finding someone who has like an 18 and up um you know a, a, a private twitter or they have a, a patreon or whatever and paying them directly for access to a dropbox folder or whatever i have the impression that that's a relatively minuscule uh, chunk of the internet compared to people who just you know of course go to pornhub because it's free yeah, of course, but it's like I think we also underestimate that there are a lot of people who are spending this money and if you're good enough at the hustle, you can make quite a bit of money. If not necessarily in the long term, in the short term. I like Cam kind of touches on it, the movie that I adore on Netflix. Yeah. Um but I, I also know people who've done camming and it is like it is a lot of work. It's not just when you go on like the, I, the one thing I like about the movie is you see the planning stages how she might do a stream for six hours a day, but she's working another five to six hours on makeup, ideas, uh, branding, messaging, uploading to private accounts, Twitter, all, like not necessarily Twitter, like specifically, but like there's so much involved that it's like you become the product and you're not just selling the video, you're selling the idea and people subscribe to individuals because they feel a personal connection the way that some people feel a personal connection to a movie star or a musician that or a they, youtuber or a youtuber or a video game streamer like i, I think it's yeah. something that people are looking for in a lot of um media that they're consuming these days parasocial relationships baby and i mean you can you potentially like there are people who are paying that and there's a lot of people who are paying a lot there's a lot of people who a lot of people paying a little but that adds up too you know it's like you can you have 500 patron patreons who are just giving you one dollar you're still making 500 dollars a month you know like mm-hmm. it's it's not insignificant um i do think it is still the exception but one wonders too like in the age before internet pornography it was still somewhat the exception even in the heyday um i think there's also if you go so it's like one of my favorite facts is that um some of the highest grossing porn films theatrically from the early 1970s so movies like deep throat uh were officially in the top 10 box office of their respective years deep throat was the is was Mm -hmm. and probably still is the highest grossing pornography film of all time in terms of theatrical release however those numbers are highly inflated apparently because they were also used by, because it's kind of in this tenuous legal zone, there were, there's lots of, not just rumors, but pretty substantiated evidence that it was used primarily for money laundering. So <laughs> even when you're talking about uh, the era when pornography was cool, that people were paying for it, they were not necessarily paying for it as much as the stats on paper will have you believe. And even at the heyday of video, it was still... I, I I I still would say it would probably be a niche percentage of the population. It's just they were spending enough money compared to the cost, and they were probably consuming a lot uh, compared to an average person. As someone who has had like some interaction with 
the sort of algorithmic aspect of porn production and dissemination. Um, we had a, a little pre-discussion before this recording where you mentioned that um, by far the most sort of prevalent current trend in pornography is this sort of step-sibling, step-parent uh, plot point or character point. Um, can you talk about that and how it gets folded in? And if you if you dare, maybe speculate on why this is happening? Well, I can definitely talk a little bit of kind of the behind the scenes in which it is super prevalent. And I've written or either on spec or in actual scripts that were produced incest porn because it's huge. Like there's something about that that audiences go crazy for. But of course, um, there's this weird thing where you can't actually do like straight up incest porn in 2019, especially if you're a large company, I actually don't know if it's a legal thing or not. Uh, very potentially it is because in the seventies, there was a lot of incest porn too. Like, especially in France, like you can watch a lot of like old school, like legit incest porn, like not legit, like it's not actual incest, but like they're not fudging around because now it's like, it's faux incest where it's always like a stepmother or a stepfather. It's never like, mom and son or aunt and uncle like they always have to kind of establish that you're not blood related so when you go out and you have to write this you have to establish very early on and very clearly that no one is related by blood so you have to go i like you have to like throw in a line that would be something like oh i hate that my dad married you something like that that like it's like they're not the they're not the actual mother it's like you're too close to my age. You could never be my mom. Like, and then you also have to establish which more specifically, because the only time I've ever had to do this is in like the incest or faux incest, the ages of people involved. You have to be super clear that everyone is over 18. So obviously like mm-hmm. the stepmom or the stepdad, like it's kind of like self-explanatory that they would be, but you have to be like, this person is in college or you have to be like, I just had my 20th birthday or something like that. Though once you get that out of the way, then you can revert back to like real incest and you can go like, you don't have to go stepmom and stuff. You can go just go like the character just calls them the mom. And then they just refer to each other as their, their son or their daughter. And why wow. is a good question. Why, why is a, is, is really the question. I don't, I think it is like very much fantasy, but it's not necessarily fantasy based in reality so much as it's just like a weird naughty thing like i guess that's kind of what i hope like i don't i hope that people don't want to like secretly bang their mom or something um because like even if it's 10 percent, it's too much because it's so like if like i would bet you if you open up Pornhub right now like on the front page there's probably at least one um like stepmom stepdad thing like it's almost like guaranteed rob do you want to boot up up okay there you go (laughs) <laughs> it's it's on my homepage. Um so yeah, I'm I'm just counting as I'm talking, but definitely it um I think it has to do with just it being a frontier. I I agree with you Justine that there isn't raging masses out there who were waiting for um incest to come to Pornhub. You know, in this in this internet age where sorry, I'm so distracted. I should close this browser window while I'm talking. Um I I, I do think that, you know, just the fact that um, someone really had the bravery to go out there and make that first uh, stepsister porn video um, and the the algorithm just sort of ticked over from there, noticing the, the viewer interest, um, that was sort of where it came from, um, because you can get 
anything else you want, uh, why not just like push the envelope that little bit more? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not on Pornhub. I'm on uh, X Hamster just for a bit of variety. And uh, <laughs> on the front page, I've counted like seven, seven incest or faux incest. And do we know if X Hamster is also a MindGeek company or are they? No, it's it's not. It's the third largest company. Okay. So that's X So. Pornhub and MindGeek is the largest. The second is Xvideo, I think it's like or Xvi Video, and then the third one is Xhamster. But I believe that like the 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 two and three like they don't they don't they can't compare even mm-hmm. to Pornhub. Like Pornhub and YouPorn, I believe, are the two largest sites by like a long shot, and those are both by MindGeek. Mm-hmm. But they're all like it's it's not just like a one industry thing. It's like industry wide. The incest thing is huge. Yeah, it is so interesting that you have the the establishing scene that there is no blood relation and then the script just continues as if it were, um, as you say, pure uh, uncut. Well, and also that creates the effect where anyone who skips the preamble, it's like, oh, yeah, this is incest. Uh, uh, for sure. And I mean, I think too, like the algorithm, like the, the code that they're putting on these sites, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you look at like a lot of them, the titles of these videos are like not mom- not sister, whatever they they insert that in, and I think that might be it's reverse porn psychology. It's it's reverse porn psychology, but I think that they actually th- like if you upload a video that's like mom and daughter, it doesn't say mom and daughter. It goes not mom and not daughter. Like it's not what the people are submitting themselves. Would like I don't know what that would be, but like it's a thing too. It's like, but I, it must be it must be something that you can't actually like even if it's fiction, you can't go full full incest. Yeah, it, it might also just be ass covering uh, not to I'm not trying to be punny here. It's just like they're 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 literally doing everything they can within reason to make sure they never come into any kind of serious scrutiny that they I'm sure they currently don't really enjoy. Of course. I mean, because I think yeah. that if it's fiction, yeah. they don't have anything to worry about. But let's say if somebody accuses them of it being incest and then they would have to prove it's not incest. It's like it's like why even get to that point if you can just establish mm-hmm. within the video that it's not incest. Yeah, I actually just searched for incest on Pornhub and there are no hits. So it's something that they're they're very clearly uh, not trying to court, although they are skirting around it with the step incest sort of thing. Yeah, and like you look like there's a lot of like clearly it's born out of like the whole thing with the MILF and like what was hip like 15 years ago mm-hmm. or 10 years ago. And they're like, oh, these videos are really popular. This all seems terribly Freudian. It's kind of gross, yeah. <laughs> and I'm always like, I stick to it's like, who's who are you associating with? I like, I don't know. I, 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 it's like when people are. I guess it depends on a lot of factors. But when you're watching it, it's like, are you okay? That's like, it's too personal. It's too far. Mm-hmm. Like, are you? Is it like a childhood fantasy, like you say, like that more Freudian thing? Or are you embodying the more dominant person or the one with the more power in that power dynamic? Is it just about power dynamics rather than the actual incest? There's a lot of things to consider. We should be thinking about sort of um, final thoughts and, you know, all that all that good stuff. Um, But I guess my, my overall feeling about like the conversation we've had today is that like, I know that there's everyone listening to this has an opinion about porn and like I'm and I'm sure that hasn't necessarily been reflected like over the course of this conversation because I it's entirely po- I I haven't read studies for instance on like what the hyper availability of porn um the sort of effect that that has had on you know people's um you know physical 
you know, sexual performance or like their their ability or their their how they enact fantasies with other people or like I don't know that that's that's you know like an, an entire dimension of impact that I just don't have access to. Um, but I do think it's it's fair to assert that you know as long as it remains this taboo subject that that paradoxically so many people in, you know interact with directly that it's going to leave space for exploitation and for people to not be compensated and to be sort of like alienated from their labor to borrow you know some Marxist jargon. Uh, I'm, I don't think that anyone uh, besides you know the 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 mind geek types are really benefiting from that. Definitely. And I think one of the things that we will probably not fully understand the impact of is these websites, MindGeek, or even the other ones like Xvideo or Xhamster, they're also amassing a huge amount of data. And yeah. compare, like, I, I'm interested in general what people are doing with this kind of information, whether it's Facebook, Tumblr, whatever, but there feels like something sinister about a website or any kind of website that are taking cues from the kind of pornography people watch. Like what, what does that inform? Who are they? What are they actually getting from that? Are they using it just to produce more pornography or what does that inform about the kind of people we are? It's all like very weird. Yeah. I mean, if you're concerned with your Facebook presence, it's, it's 10 times more potentially damaging or interesting um, to people who want your personal information to know uh, what sort of pornography you're interested in. And by the way, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but like if you're listening right now and you use private mode to browse pornography, the company still knows what you're doing. Uh, that only protects you from your family members seeing your history. Um, so so do seriously, though, do like have a think about, you know, what that means in your viewing habits. And, uh, you know, as long as we are talking about final thoughts, um, if you are a, a pornography watcher, uh tweet about it you know especially if you hold a high place in society let let people know what you're into maybe hit that share button next time on Pornhub Josh Marshall was a uh, was a pioneer yes. and he didn't even know it it worked well for him it, right my man is stronger than ever wait didn't doesn't Army Hammer sometimes share the porny likes does he I think well everyone knows he's into bondage porn but I don't remember if it's because he said I'm into bondage porn or he shared it, or he was liking a bunch of bondage porn on Twitter. I think that was it. Cause you right, can see and now he's just likes. owning it? Yeah, well, I mean, you can't deny it, right? You can't do it, pull a Ted Cruz and say it was an intern. <laughs> <laughs> Lean in, I'm following him right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's probably a great note to end on. Uh, Justine, where can people find you online, and, and where can they find the stuff you're writing? Uh, you can find me at Red Room Rantings. That's the, on Twitter and on Instagram. Those are the easiest ways to find, a, find out what I'm up to. What kind of stuff do you share on Instagram? I, I share photos of books I'm reading, Montreal. I, I use stories more. I'm into the stories thing right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is just note-taking for me. Like, my most recent story is that the Cinematheque Quebecoise is going to be putting on a Hong Sang Soo retrospective starting in March. Nice. Yeah, that's a plug. There we go. Lo- love me some saying Sue. Um, and you, you're mostly at the National Post these days? Yeah, yeah, mostly that. And that's that's just about it for this episode of Hacks. You can find me on Twitter at Hollowminds and Rob at RG Scherf with a CH, uh, SCH rather. And um, we will be taking next week off because I am going to be in Mexico for my first ever and possibly last ever vacation. 
So uh, pretty, pretty excited. Um, pretty, pretty excited. So uh, Simon breaking means- scheduling news about this podcast to his co-hosts on this podcast. Yeah. Thank so, you. That's 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 just how it happens on, on this bitch of an earth sometimes. Um, anyway, and I want to thank you so much, Justine, for coming on and being our first guest. This was a great talk. And um, if there's ever breaking internet porn news, we hope to bring you back to discuss um, the the what of it all. Sounds fabulous. All right. Thanks so much, Justine. Thanks, Justine. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.